0: Hello, um, I'm Kevin Scott, one of the story architects of Star Wars The High Republic, and you're listening to Genuine Chit Chat. Hello there, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Genuine Chit Chat. This week I am joined by Andrew Heaton. Now, Andrew Heaton, or Heaton as he likes to be called, has got numerous podcasts, has written several books, is what he describes as like a professional talker. He's appeared on loads of podcasts, guesting and his own ones and all kinds of stuff. He is a very, very busy man. He also dabbles in stand-up comedy and all kinds of other things as well. So he's classed himself as a comedian and a political commentator, but also a podcaster. So he does a huge amount of things. And this conversation is kind of an introduction to Heaton. I mean, we do speak about his life. He lived in Scotland for a while his kind of career we also speak about language and dialect for quite a while as well as accents because he's american and he obviously lived in scotland and he traveled around the uk a little bit and stuff like that so we just speak about like a variety of things including language dialects comedy his life podcasting that sort of stuff with funny anecdotes sprinkled in betwixt them But that's all I'm going to say about this conversation here so make sure you check out the links in the description to Heaton's website as well as the variety of other things he gets up to then I'll be back at the end of this conversation to tell all of you what's coming up and a few other bits and pieces as well I will also note here that I did have a cold slash cough in this conversation I did manage to edit out the three major coughs that I did if you're going to watch the YouTube version of this you will actually see me cough but I muted my mic so I just want to clarify if you do hear me sounding a bit rough or you do hear a little cough here or there I do apologize for that but anyway on with the show so present to yourselves andrew heaton welcome to genuine chit chat where we have honest conversations with interesting people and i'm your host mike burton here we are so i am here today with someone who has got more podcasts than I have, who has been doing this kind of thing far more than I actually have, which is very rare to meet someone who's more of a professional talker than I am. And this is Andrew Heaton. Uh, So, Andrew, well, you prefer being called Heaton. Uh, How are you doing, sir? I'm great. Uh,
1: Mike, it's a pleasure to be on your show. I'm coming to you from Austin, Texas, the... Shrewsbury of America. I don't know what the (laughs) the London of America or the London of Texas. Uh, And uh, I'm doing great. Uh, I have been very busy of late. Just adopted a dog. I'm spending lots of time with friends and and being productive on the the various shows that you referenced um, that, that I'm up to. So yeah, I'm well. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm still getting off, uh, getting off, getting um, through a little bit of a cold. So it's my Mm -hmm. throat is a little bit rougher and I look a little bit worse for wear for any of the YouTube uh, watchers. But yeah, aside from that, I'm doing okay. I've, um, we've, myself, my partner, Megan, we've just gone through and bought a house and exchanged contracts. So we pick up the keys in a few days. So it's our first property we have ever owned so been seeing one, of, for a one long time of my it.
1: big I, I i am i am a renter but one mm. of my goals is to eventually buy a home and date a megan mm, and nice. uh while neither of those have happened yet i i hope to emulate you in both counts
0: <laughs> well thank you very much well yeah so it's been uh very busy the last few months and now it's like okay now we're shifting gear from searching for a house and things to now we've got it we're going to be doing uh, where, things where
1: did you buy a that. house what part of england
0: do you live in so i live in southampton so um, I okay. live right near the bottom. There's there's a little bit that comes out, which is the Isle of Wight, and that right. um, there's like a crack in uh, in England, like the butt, uh, the butt hole of England, and um, right next. to it, It's not really. I like Southampton, but Southampton's like right next to it. It's, uh-huh. it's just really dead straight. Down, it's, really. it's Southampton is the county or the region? It's the uh, city. It's the city Oh okay yes. So it,
1: like where would it be In regard like I know Scotland really well I kind mm-hmm. of know England But I yeah. don't know Southern England too So like I've gone to Portsmouth And I've gone to Burnmouth
0: Por- Portsmouth, where I was born Portsmouth is right okay. next To Southampton It's 20 minutes up the road Okay They're right. like but rival That's a, lo- that's a lovely cities. part of the country Yeah I was born there I like both I've got friends in Portsmouth And my mum's side is from Portsmouth And my dad's side is from Southampton I, uh, so so
1: I, I did I did a study abroad at Oxford, and then I went back years later, and I lived there just as a townie doing odd jobs. And I, I was at a bar about a month ago, and I really freaked out a couple of girls from Oxford that were visiting because we're, we're talking. Uh, and I'm like, so Oxford, like, are you from like, you know, Oxford proper? Or are you from like uh, – um. Uh. oh gosh I went blank it was going to sound so cool I was going to list all the the surrounding towns uh, around like Swindon I was like are you from Oxford or are you from Swindon you're pretending to be from Oxford and her jaw dropped and she's like how do you know about Swindon and like, like <laughs> thought I was like she thought she was at a, a game show or something because uh, no one had ever ever mentioned Swindon
0: to her before <laughs> that's amazing I mean with your life like you've traveled in a lot of different places and one of the aspects of our conversation I was most intrigued by that I've heard It'd be lightly touched upon in other uh, conversations that you've had on the internet that I've heard, but I've not listened to your entire back catalogue, I didn't have time. Um, but the is you lived in Scotland for a while, and I saw on your website there's a fun fact you like to tell people about. Uh, well, what what did you tell them about the distillery?
1: Uh, yeah, I own one square foot of land on, uh, on Isla, where Laphroaig and Lagavulin and Ardbeg come from. If, if you've ever had a Scotch that you you drank and everybody thought that you had just inhaled a campfire. That's from Isla. It's a very smoky taste. And uh, um, Laphroaig has a brilliant marketing campaign where if you buy certain bottles, a, a form will fall out. And if you fill it out and you send it in, they send you a deed to one square foot of land. Mm-hmm. So I did this and they sent me this deed. So I, I made an international call and I called them and went, uh, hey, uh, my name's Andrew Heaton. I've got a square foot of land. Can I drill for oil? And and the, the guy on the other line went, ah, no, no, it's it's a, a it's a non hereditary right you've got to this land, but there's an easement on it. You can't build anything. But if you ever show up, we'll we'll take you out to see your land, I guess. And I went okay, and then like got off that phone and then called my adopted Scottish uncle and was like, "We're going to Isla," <laughs> and he was like, "Oh great, we'll take my car, we'll take a ferry, and we like because I was already going to be over there doing stand up, and uh, and so. Uh, was out it was there in like three weeks and, and rolled up and was like, it's me. Where's my land at? And they were like, oh, oh it didn't okay uh all right, here's <laughs> some boots uh, and some whiskey and we, we took it out there I, uh, my my adopted uncle built me a Lego castle that we put on top of it. Uh, wow. so've I've got that I've got that one square foot of land someday God willing it'll be up to five or six square feet of of Scotland.
0: Wow. That is that is incredible. I mean, also your Scottish accent was very well done there. Uh,
1: Thank you. I I really appreciate good. that because because most Americans, when affecting a Scottish accent, are really just mimicking groundskeeper Willie or Scotty mm-hmm. from Star Trek. Yep. Neither of which are are great Scottish accents. But I've lived over there. I've drunk over there. I've slept with their women. I believe that I could <laughs> like I I could if dropped over there like kind of blend in. Like and I do sometimes. I was at a wedding uh, five years ago. And a lady was just convinced I was some guy's son. Like, I, like, and I, granted, I was in a kilt and I had a beard, which for some reason makes me more Scott Like, I look more English when I'm clean shaven. I look more Scottish when I'm bearded. I don't know why. <laughs> and um, a lady came up and went, I know you. You're and McGregor's son from the Isle of Skye. And I went, Nope. I'm, I'm Andrew Heaton from Edmond, Oklahoma. And she went, No, you're Ewan McGregor's son from Skye. I know you're da. And I was like I I pr- I promise ma'am that like my my mother is not that colorful like she just there's no way she could have boned that guy. I'm pretty sure it's my dad. Uh but but could if I ever need to like lay low and hide from the law, I think I could escape to Scotland, probably do it, go to some small town.
0: Yeah, great Like
1: Leic- Leicester. Anybody, if anybody comes looking for me, I'll be in Leicester.
0: We've got it here then. That's it. That's going to be the yep. breadcrumb. So in yep. 10 years, we'll scared. Go. That's
1: going to be the thing that does me in.
0: Yeah. That's going to be this show inadvertently. And I'll have to make the decision when you uh, start becoming famous from being on the law. If do oh, I take down that episode, is that going to draw more attention? Yeah, exactly. You're like, conspiracy. I really
1: like that guy, but he did kill all those people.
0: I feel like I
1: should really <laughs> alert Interpol about that. He said, he said he'd be at Leipster. There's only two pubs there. He's at one of them and he'd come get
0: me. So, Alvin, just, I want to kind of... Uh, as much of your life as you're willing to share in certain aspects, we're not going to go through an entire biography because we don't really have that kind of time. Um, but mm-hmm. from uh, your young age up to teenage years, I suppose, did you travel around a lot or in the the place that you're living in America now, your Texas is where you're living. You said you, you're not from there originally. So your general life up to the point that you went to Scotland that you said you lived in for a couple of years, I know you lived in like New York and lots of other places, mm-hmm. just sort of a, a vague telling of where you've lived, the kind of timeline of where right. you've gone. Because I'm always intrigued by people absorbing other cultures and things as they grow up and that sort of thing, even growing now.
1: Yeah. So uh, so I have traveled extensively, as you note, know, and I've lived in a lot of different locations. But all of that started later for me. I, I didn't leave the country until I was, I think, 19. I mm. uh, had never been out of the United States until nineteen. Um which is very normal in America, particularly in Middle America, would I'm guessing be kind of abnormal in Europe and in Britain, where it's a lot easier to travel. Um so yeah. I, I grew up I grew up in Oklahoma, which for for your listeners that are unfamiliar with it, it's the Canada of Texas. Oklahoma' is just whatever whatever Texas is. We're just kind of a quieter version of that directly north of it. So I, I don't know what region of the country I'm from. I'm basically from North, North Texas uh, and grew up there. Um, didn't really travel around extensively in the United States either. Uh, like our, our vacations as a kid were fairly humble. Um, we would go to Dallas to check out the Galleria, which is just a city in Texas. Uh, we did go to Disney world a couple of times. Uh, and then I, I went to, I think Washington DC once when I was in high school and that was about the extent of it. Um, so it's, it's been fun for me because, uh, from, from 19 on I've, I really enjoy traveling and really have traveled a lot. And so, um, I feel like I get to have kind of a Mark Twain Innocence Abroad vibe to me, uh, where where Twain, anybody who reads the book, it, it holds up remarkably well, by the way, The Innocence Abroad by Mark Twain. He's relaying what would be very normal about Germany or whatever to a German to an American audience and, and can see this is how it's incongruous to me given my background. And I, I feel like I still have that. I still kind of use Middle America as a yardstick, even though I've lived out with Middle America for most of my adult life. Uh, I graduated college or university when I was 23 uh, and really haven't been back since that time. Uh, mm. I, I mean, I now live here in Austin, Texas, but Austin is sort of like if you dropped Brooklyn into the middle of Texas. It's kind <laughs> of its own phenomenon. Uh, and and so it's not – it's Texas, but it's it's Texas with a lot of ukuleles. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, uh, and a a lot of, uh, uh, psychedelic mushrooms and things. Um, but I, yeah, I graduated from, from, uh, uh, University of Oklahoma, uh, left. I, I lived in England for about six months. Mm -hmm. Um, there, there was a, um, it, it was a big contrast too. I had, when I got out of college, my first job out of college was working on a ranch in Logan County, Oklahoma. And I went from that to going to England, where I worked for John Burko for like three days, who's the former Speaker of the House. They he needed like a temp, and I came in, so I got to go work from Parliament, which was wow. a great contrast, going from um mending fences and, and literally getting electrocuted by cattle, cattle fences on a daily basis to like Being next, like being able to see Big Ben from my office window, and and talking to uh, the the good people of Berkshire, where uh, uh, Speaker uh, Berko comes from. I didn't do that too long, incidentally. Unfortunately, it was just a temp job. Although it would have been fun to work for Parliament longer. Uh, Went back to Oxford as I alluded to, and lived there for a little while. Uh, And then I moved up to Scotland. I was in Scotland for six months as a tour guide. Hmm. Fell in love with Scotland and have maintained that. that ongoing romance with Scotland since then. I, uh, barring pandemic, I go back every year. This summer, I plan to be there for three months. Mm. Uh, partly because I love Scotland, and partly because I hate Texas summer. So it seems to me becoming bicoastal would be a good thing. Mm. Um, and uh and then I, I went back a few years later. I got my master's degree in international politics from the University of Edinburgh. And that kind of sealed the deal where my my degenerate barfly friends realized I was actually going to be coming back regularly, so they really did need to learn my name. <laughs> and uh now have not I've been to their weddings and things.
0: Oh, um
1: and uh let me think, I uh I got back from Britain and I lived in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years. Uh I started doing stand-up comedy while I was there, uh, but my day job was working for the United States Congress. And then I ended up moving to New York, and I became a television writer, and I was in New York by my count for five years, but I did the math the other day, and it was eight years, so I don't really know. I was either there <laughs> for five or eight years. I'm, I'm kind of confused about that. Um, but I was there for, uh, for yeah, five to eight years working in television, uh, which was a lot of fun, And um, and then I moved down to Texas. Uh, I ended up moving to a different city because I had a television show. That got canceled. I'm great. Everything's fine. I moved out to LA. The pandemic happened. That was horrible. I ended up moving into a camper, like a 13-foot camper for six months just so I could not be under solitary confinement in a converted dumbwaiter. And uh, and eventually went, you know what? I think I was right about Austin. And I moved back to Austin, Texas uh, in October of last year. Wow. That's quite the journey. Yeah. I, I am I am looking forward to just owning plants. Being in a location long enough that I can have a plant. Well. Uh, and and pri- prior to you coming on, oh, very nice. Uh, what is that? Wait, is that a staghorn?
0: Uh, there's I can't l- see from there's, here. There's actually quite a few plants. Oh, you've got several. Uh, yeah. They're, they're, some of them are my my girlfriend's more the, the person with green fingers. I've got a couple of aloe vera plants that I'm very good at growing and nice. a couple of house plants. There's a spider plant. There's a lily there. Uh, uh-huh. There's a few succulents and things. There's a planty thing i don't know what that yeah. other one is we've got and in the other room we've got lots of aloe vera and um, megan's yeah. growing an avocado plant like so gonna be able to grow like, have avocados in theory and they're very hard to grow and she's got like four orchids as well so we are we are in that point i mean we're buying a house and she jokes to yeah. to house all our plants so, nice. so it's a funny that you mention plants well I'm plus, plus you, you
1: guys like like england is such a beautiful lush country uh and and like, i think um Charles II nailed it on the head. He described England as the the best climate and the worst weather on earth. And I'm like, (laughs) I think that's pretty true. Like the the climate in England is actually very temperate. It's this kind of just perpetual, moderate autumn, spring variance, but real rainy right out of the blue all the time. But it it leads to a very lush green country. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I also find that like English people – To your great credit, English people feel about gardens the way Americans do about cars. Like we put all this effort into (laughs) Buicks and maintaining our car and you guys just really work your garden. And it like (laughs) – gardens don't tend to wake me up at 3 o'clock in the morning because some jackass wants to get laid with a muffler. So I'm in the (laughs) pro-garden camp. I wish we were bigger on gardens.
0: Yeah. I mean, gardens are, are pretty great. I mean, I don't like front gardens as much. I think they're a waste. I think if you can get a drive and put your car on there, it just saves so much effort, it saves mm. space on the road and et cetera. But back gardens is like one of the things me and Megan are most excited for because we're currently mm. living in a, in a flat. Or in a, do you call them flats in America? Apartments?
1: We call them apartments, although yeah. I, I prefer the term flatmates. So like you mentioned Americanisms earlier. Mm. The the, uh, the the three Britishisms that I think we should bring out over here. Um, well, actually, I don't know. Do you say out with or is that just Scottish? What in what context? Um,
0: he's gone out uh, with someone else.
1: Uh, no, uh, let me think. Um, uh, out with that situation, uh, just in, in place of outside of, out with. So, outside no, of, I'm a very busy Scottish man. Standard. Outside of, that's three syllables. Out with is two syllables. I'm saving I a lot see. of time by no, saying I'd, out with.
0: I think that's a Scottish term, more Okay.
1: So, so I, I, that's like my, my one, like, uh, overt pretension that I've I've bootlegged back from there. I think you guys are dead right about calling uh, chips crisps yep. and fries chips. That makes sense. <laughs> French fries is a stupid term. The reason we call them French fries in America is because back in like 1900, the the slang to fry something was to French it. Mm. So like a pancake would be like French bread. Mm-hmm. And so French fries literally means fried fries. It's, it's, <laughs> it's meaning, it's like grapefruit. Mm. Stupid. stupid. Uh, like chips make sense because you're chipping them off the potato, right? And crisps mm-hmm. make sense because they're crispy. So that makes sense to me. The other one I really like that you guys do is flatmates uh, mm. and and flat, right? Because like roommate makes sense if I'm in a bunk bed. If, yeah. if the person shares a room with me, I've been roommates with my brother when I was very little and we lived mm-hmm. in bunk beds. But like if, if, we're, if we're sharing an apartment, apartment mates is too long. Flatmates make sense. So we, we generally say house or apartment, but I think flats makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, flat works. It, it, although in context of what it actually is, it's like you know, it's it's like a house, but it's flat. It's like well, that's actually a bungalow, but yeah, they've got a technically a second floor. It gets uh, complicated when you look into the English and the American English language too much. But I will say some of my favorite American versions of English words is you've got cotton candy. We have candy wow. floss. It's,
1: yeah, you don't floss. With Agreed, that is stupid. That's yeah, horrible. candy floss is dumb. Like, cotton also, candy. Strawberry superior. laces
0: would be more sensical to call them strawberry floss wouldn't they you know because they're mm-hmm. the, the kind of i wouldn't want to do it that with like the laces or the chewy yeah. kind of gummy things uh, another one is ladybug because we call it ladybirds which i think is stupid it's just like yeah that's also dumb i didn't even know that because yeah. they're they're
1: bugs why would yeah. you call them birds that's stupid
0: yeah yeah and i mean there's another one that i like but i, I can't remember what it is there, there's a few that i pick, sort of pick up on um the uh Americanisms, but with Britishisms. You know, it's it's the Queen's English. But even though I say that in jest, because I do not speak the Queen's English, because I'm from the south and I do not pronounce my T's properly. So it's Harry Potter. You want some water? <laughs> have, have, have you ever uh, have you ever read Mother Tongue by Bill Bryson? Funnily enough, I haven't. But my late father, he was a massive uh, Bill Bryson fan. Mm-hmm. So he's and I've just downloaded on Audible the short history of just about everything right my yeah. dad used to tell me a lot of things about that but please elaborate for the audience who so probably don't know bill
1: bryson is a great englishman and or american i don't yeah. know how he you define. i think he's, he's from between. i he's from like peoria iowa but he's one of those guys that's been over in england like for 40 years and is now english in any capacity other than birth like like sounds about as english as the queen i think he's now the rector of uh Um, oh, one of the northern universities, not Dartmouth. The name will come to me in a minute. Um, there's there's one of see he he became very famous writing uh, Notes from a Small Island, which Mm -hmm. is basically a love letter to England from an American that was very enchanted with it. You could see why that became very popular in England. It was very funny too. He's a funny writer. Yeah, Uh, he kind of like in his 50s, uh, late 50s, maybe, kind of pivoted from being a humor travel writer to being a Pithy science writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and his trick is he's very good at doing really in-depth research and communicating it in a in a funny, distilled manner. Um, my favorite book of his is Mother Tongue, and he goes through it, just talks about the formation of the English language. And um, uh, some of the things that he points out, and there are um I mean, languages mutate very quickly. The idea that uh, like like the the English accent is pristine and has always been like that, and then it spits out felons to Australia. and they develop a weird mutant accent is not the right way to look at things. Uh, everybody's accents changing on the regular basis. And from what we know, um, Queen Elizabeth I probably sounded more like I do than she does to Queen Elizabeth II, and the reason mm. that we can make that inference, having no records of it, is to to try and figure out pronunciation. When you go back in time, you basically rely on two things: you rely on rhyming poetry to see what letters people were rhyming. So, for example, um, you you know if you read my poetry that that when I use the word laugh, I am effectively using it as L A F F. I'm not using it as lauga. You you know that I'm pronouncing that as an F, right? So if I say laugh, laughy taffy, something like that, right? So you you have that kind of thing, and she pronounced your R's based on that. The other thing you can do, which is less useful with Queen Elizabeth, it does give you a broad idea of. Uh, of accents at the time is reading from semi-literate people because uh, fully literate people will write laugh L-A-U-G-H whereas a semi-literate person will write L-A-F or L-A-F-F and you can see how people actually pronounce things at the time. Um, and uh, yeah, fascinating book about just kind of the development of English and one of the things he points out is um the – like the rules that we sort of delude ourselves into thinking that English even has rules are uh, at best consensus and are mostly frivolous bullshit. <laughs> uh, so like for example, in, in English, we are, we are told that we should not put a split infinitive at the end of a sentence uh, or we shouldn't put a preposition at the end of a sentence. I believe that's a split infinitive. So I can't say – uh, I, I went out to get some of, I, I don't know, I, I, of, you know, a preposition to the end of sentence. Yeah. The reason for that is that in, like, 1800, all of the inbred aristocrats running England had a major boner for romance languages and were just in the throes of uh, continental envy of, you know, like like this weird, like – Weird English thing of like, oh, England's a wasteland. It's just Arkansas with castles and all these grubby Germanic people. The real sophisticated people were the Roman Empire, which means that romance languages are the good languages. So they just started applying Latin rules to English, which is at root Germanic. uh, And it didn't make any sense. It was like saying like, we love cricket. From now on, we're going to play it like basketball. And so you get all these (laughs) weird – Weird, nonsensical things in the English language, uh, or like the fact that we don't have a second person plural is crazy. And like any second person plural you use, makes you sound like a yokel. That's nuts. That like if I say y'all, yeah. or, or you say you lot, like that, like it sounds colloquial and dumb. And it's like that. <laughs> it's a very useful word.
0: Mm. I agree completely. It, it is mental with like language. Like my uh, Megan, my uh, girlfriend. She is a languages teacher. So she is uh, half Italian. So her dad's Italian, her mum's English. So she speaks English and Italian. She speaks Spanish and also French. And she's also now on Duolingo learning a bit of German as well. So she speaks all these languages. So she's always very intrigued by the... The differences in the languages and where they sort of come from and the mm-hmm. origins and things. When she was learning German, I was like, one thing about that is that you'll find that the pronunciation is probably easiest in German than a lot of the un- other languages. Mm-hmm. Because, like French, for example, obviously every last letter you just ignore. And I, I right. can't fathom a more stupid rule in any language ever. It's like, why fr- don't you just French- not have the letter there?
1: Yeah, fr- French strikes me as a series of elegant honking noises. Like, imagine a goose that's very wealthy. That is to me what all I- like. <laughs> <laughs> it like like because you don't you don't actually hit it whereas your yeah, german has like very hard angular words you know nach. like it's very like you can hear those consonants
0: mm. yeah exactly and it's just like i can speak a very very small amount of french because uh, i learned it at, in school and things but it's just so hard to wrap your head around and speaking in that sort of tongue whereas like german's a bit easier and for me spanish flows a little bit more in italian and things but one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, while we're still on the subject of sort of language and dialect, is: Did you find when you were living in the UK, one thing that I found astonishing when I realised is that you can travel for about an hour, if that, and the, the accent completely changes. And yeah. obviously, in America, it's state to state. But right. the America, the United if, States if of America, if that, yeah, is more close to sort of Europe in its uh, in its mix of like how close things are together, not in the cultures necessarily. Whereas England's its own thing, where it's kind of like. You know, it's about a two f- hundredth of the size of the US, but we've got about a fifth of the population mm-hmm. thereabouts. So it's like the difference is there's so much crammed in certain areas. Obviously, a lot of fields when you drive through England and things. Yeah, but you just have to drive an hour or so in a different direction, and you get a completely different accent. Is that something oh, that sure. you found
1: to be quite <laughs> weird? That was, it was. It was very surprising. Though. It was very surprising. So, like now, now I know that because I've lived over there and I've traveled through through Britain pretty extensively. Um, being the uh, the the fairly green guy from middle America who had not grown up with a passport or any form of travel uh, I was very startled the first time I came to England again now now I can blend in and I can talk about tea and I have uh, I have opinions on lager and like and like, we, like I, can, I can argue about like Boris Johnson and stuff I have like opinions on, on Thatcher like now I can just blend in you wouldn't know and like and I look like a very handsome Wallace and Gromit claymation character <laughs> which I feel like works in england very well uh and all my jeans are so like you can't tell for 20 20- back in the day though like getting off uh i think it, it getting off the train because i came in from italy into london and i'd mm. never been there before i i uh americans who have not traveled have a very cartoonish understanding of of great britain that was shocked like i literally again this is me as a 23 year old not as a 38 year old worldly guy i was like why are these people wearing denim it is my understanding <laughs> that they all wear suits and carry umbrellas, and uh, and and the fact like the fact that you all were wearing denim was it really threw me off because I like I had expected everything to be like kind of quaint and like not quite Victorian but a little bit Victorian. <laughs> like I had like she, yeah exactly chic and hip were not things that I realized were part of the British experience. So that's partly like I think partly Americans we in our film we like to project. Like we we simultaneously lionize and demean Britain in the American cultural context. We we lionize it in that um, Britain is just stand-in for sophisticated smart guy. Like it's a really quick way in a movie of like oh he's got a British accent that means he's very smart. Uh, he's <laughs> he's he's a duke or a professor or something, right? And like whereas like I have to say, you go to continental Europe, that is not how Europeans think of English people. Like like as Americans, we think all English people are either dukes or professors or delightful cockneys. Like those are the only two forms of English people, whereas like Germans think of English people as those obnoxious drunks who start bar fights at football games. Like
0: both are, com- com- yeah, <laughs> both, yeah, both
1: are correct but in there's certain ways. All of these things. It's a myriad country, right? Um, so we we lionize you in that capacity, but we also kind of demean Britain in that it is it is to the American ethos of like – we want England to be quaint. We mm-hmm. want it to be old world because we're the and new party and that contrast makes us feel like very vigorous and hip and important if you all are sitting in cottages, drinking tea, arguing about the Plantagenets or some other thing. You don't really do on a regular basis, but it makes us feel that way. But yeah, to, to your point, Mike, uh, it, 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 uh, the accents really threw me off. Um, I, I mentioned that I like briefly worked for um, for um, Speaker Burko. I couldn't understand half the people that called me uh because I, at that time I knew uh upper cl- upper crust like home counties accent uh like not just ho- home counties who went to oxbridge accent I knew that accent I knew the like Ian McKellen Patrick Stewart accent right yeah. uh and I knew the cockney accent I could I could code I could translate that I I I knew Daphne from Fraser was from some other town that didn't sound like these two. Th- but she's Cockney, I guess, because she's poor. Because I don't know. I don't know how this works. Uh, people would call me, and I couldn't understand them. And I, I'd have to go like, I'm very sorry. Like it was this weird thing where they get mad at me. Which fair, they're calling their member of parliament, and they're speaking their native tongue. Like I don't blame them. But I'd be like, look, I'm really sorry. Like they can understand me because they've seen all of our sitcoms, so they can translate me just fine. But oh, I yeah. I couldn't. Understand Understand them. Um, uh, and, and then you get up to Scotland and I can understand everybody in Scotland save Glasgow. Uh, Glasgow is just like a Glaswegian accent to me sounds like an Irish person drowning. <laughs> it's just as like, like, hey, how are you? Oh, And you're like, that I you're smiling. You're not, you don't look like you're gonna stab me. I guess we're on the same team. Oh, and a beautiful and 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 so I, I can't i can't code them but yeah but you you guys do have just the accents are completely different it's actually very liberating as an american to come over uh, to england and spend any time over there because you realize that anyone in america that ever tries to talk down to you about pronunciation is utterly full of shit um so for example like americans lo- like americans that went to college love correcting people that say nuclear it's nuclear it's not nuclear it's nuclear fuck you like i i guarantee you there's like 40 towns in england where people say nuclear and like in the American context, all English people outrank all American people linguistically. Like that's just how it works. You guys outrank us, uh, and and you can pronounce things. And like like uh, names for towns are different. Like in America, we would say Berkshire, in England, you would say Berkshire. Um, like you, you, you still you have a hint of French. Where like we would say Gloucester, and you say Gloucester. That, or, you gl- the
0: Gloucester throws me off even now. Yeah. To clarify, it's th- so many of the different uh, towns and things. I mean, when you go to Wales, or if you go to, uh, oh yeah, so in Scotland. It's all all the yeah. road names are certain. Uh, so the places are just called crazy things, and you're just like, I don't understand. Like in England, we're connected to Scotland and Wales. Well, with the Scottish accent, as you described, there are certain parts of scotland and also certain parts of ireland and even wales where if the accent is so strong in a certain region as a southern british individual even though i've traveled to wales a lot i've been to scotland a couple of times but i've like one of my this doesn't make me understand scottish necessarily more but like one of my favorite films is train spotting and i've seen a few other scottish things that i enjoy so the accent is more familiar to me and i've had friends right. who are, uh, have a scottish accent and things but with irish irish it's the least I have one teacher that was Irish. So when I hear a really strong Irish accent, although Ireland is very close to the UK, I think I'd understand a strong French accent probably more than a strong mm. Irish accent because of Interesting. the amount of French that I've learned. Yeah, So it's one of those strange things where when it comes to... But in England, I think people are generally quite accepting in the most places uh, of if you come with a different dialect because our, our entire language is such a... a mess and there's so many different dialects and so many different regional accents when someone from a different country comes over uh as long as the person isn't against immigrants and things which is most people aren't you've got that thing of you know the people's uh someone who speaks their language if you're just trying to be english you're trying to speak in english we're more accepting whereas i know mm-hmm. certain places in europe can be a little bit more judgy if you don't speak their tongue perfectly it's, a, it's language is such a a weird and strange thing that yeah. just it it's one it's bizarre to speak about and that's pro- probably innate i mean like like one one thing you you're very accurate in pointing out
1: is in england unquestionably has more accents than the united states does and that that's even even including Immigrants that have come over and have an accent by virtue of being from India or whatever, even, even including those, England has more of them because all of your towns are a thousand years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or, you know, may, maybe, maybe Southampton itself isn't a thousand years old, but the, the town that used to be there was five miles north. And that was the one that was like the Roman fort, right? And, uh, it's also like, it's like a, Americans, there's a, there's a north-south thing, uh, where they kind of hate each other. There's definitely a red state, blue state thing. Um, mm-hmm. and then after that, it's just kind of football rivalry. Like it's yeah. just sort of like like, oh, we don't like your football day. Whereas you guys, like, like you'll talk to Scots and like, oh, we hate that town, we don't like the even though we're all atheists, they stole the head of St. Fergus from our town back a thousand years ago. We've never forgave them. <laughs> and you're like, but you're all atheists now. I ain't what atheists now. And like they'll they'll have these, like, these long-running um long-running rivalries. Uh I and I think you're right too. The the accent thing, um, there's oh, who wrote this? It might be by it might be Arnold Kling, uh, a guy that I, I interviewed on The Political Orphanage. Shout out to my show. Um, he talks about how uh, accents are probably not random, but are rather an evolutionary um, feature. Um, mm. So if, if we go back, human beings are about 300,000 years old insofar as we know. Um, and we probably had language uh, 200,000 years maybe. I don't know, like at least 20,000 years, probably around 150 to 200,000 years. So yeah. our, our, our civilization – is much older than recorded civilization. And the experience of being a human being as we would know it is much, much, much older and and far beyond that of recorded history way before the Egyptians. And if we go back to when everybody on Earth is a caveman, uh, it appears to have been much more advantageous for you to immediately – Recognize an outsider than to be able to communicate with them. Today, Mm communication is way better. If if I see somebody coming down the street, the likelihood that they're going to kill me or steal my goat or or you know rape my wife or anything like that, very minimal. Very minimal. The likelihood that they're going to like sell me a hot dog. Or, or you know, have like a, a review I should look at for, on Amazon, much, much higher. But that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be the case based on what we can piece together with uh, just circumstantial evidence that for most of human history, um, being able to immediately identify an outsider or maybe even some nuance of like, well, that's an outsider, but they seem to speak our language. So they might be like a cousin tribe. Let's see if we have any kinship uh, connections to them. Seems to be a thing. And um, accents mutate very quickly. Uh, like, like, like you know, teenagers make up bullshit words. That's normal, and and that's that's a part of the human experience because um, hu- human language fractures so very quickly, so that we can do that. So I'm not surprised that monocultures would be more or less forgiving. I, I think um, um, a lot of the time, uh, at least with the American experience, we're sort of viewed as uh, we, we we have a lot of racist problems in America, and we certainly have dark chapters of racism in America. But I, I will. I will commend to your audience that we're also the most uh, ethnically diverse country in the history of mankind, that we're very welcoming to foreigners. We bring in about 200,000 people a year, most of whom are not white. Uh, and a, a lot of countries that we sort of view as – I say as Americans that we view as like wonderful, great social democracies are two million people monocultures where everybody has the exact same ethnicity, religion, and language. and. Um, they, it might be easier for them to think of other races abstractly, uh, but when people come in may not be as welcoming as, as even we would be. Mm. Yeah. So that's my pro-American thing for a minute. We're not as racist as I mean, you think.
0: I mean, I, to clarify, like English people, we are, the way I'll describe almost English people with Americans is I think how Americans perceive it is you are the sort of older brother who knows better, who's stronger. And we're the kind of smaller meek character that can kind of. bit more proper a bit more not willing to do the sort of the hard thing that you need to do and we're a bit more meek and kind of careful in the background you know, drinking our tea because of it not that you not think you as an individual believes that of english people uh, or that most americans do but the real strong stereotype would be that sort of yeah we're the big americans we're quite strong and a lot of english people do view americans in that sort of way but not in a, oh, they're here to save us more. They're the brutes. Yeah. They can yeah, be yeah. the ones that are too pushy. And, too- and it's interesting, though, we both are probably the most similar nations when it comes to our capitalist and consumerist and media consumption. But our political systems are somewhat mirrored. They're, they're diff- Obviously, you are, uh, as well as being a comedian and an author and also a, a professional speaker, you are heavy, heavily into the political, political yeah. world. Uh, what was the term that you use to describe yourself as a political speaker?
1: Uh, I mean, I usually say I'm a gas bag, or, <laughs> or I, I, I'll oftentimes say I'm professionally clever. Yeah. Uh, when, when it comes to politics, I would say I'm a political satirist because mm. my my sort of my underlying ethnic group is comedian, but I do a lot of policy analysis. I I hesitate to say I'm a journalist, although I do journalism occasionally, but I do a lot of policy analysis and. On on my program, The Political Orphanage, I am – I'm the, the two things that I tend to be most interested in, I, I'm really not interested in who's going to win the election. Mm-hmm. I, I care, but I don't I'm, – I'm not super intellectually engaged in it. What, what I'm really interested in is how people think. Mm-hmm. So like differences between how uh, British people and American people uh, th- think about problems and approach pro- uh, problems, that's fascinating to me. I love cognition and I like policy. I really just like going like, okay, um, th- this is the policy that we've got in place in terms of how we get taxes in our country or something like that. And like what works and what doesn't work. I really enjoy that kind of thing. So funny policy analyst. God, that sounds horrible, but that might be what I am.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's it's one of those where that's one of the areas that really intrigues you. And I've noticed from your various podcasts, as well as your various guest appearances and things, you are somewhat, we have similar interests in the way that I think you are just basically interested in everything. There's a few things that specifically pique your interest more than others, p- politics being one of them. But you are basically just like, I'll talk to almost anyone about almost anything, and I'll try basically anything at least once. And it's that kind of mindset of just because of that, you have such a diverse audience and your podcast. I wonder if, like, I will not speak of the numbers but we spoke about them before pressing record and things. I wonder if the reasons that our shows aren't, say, in the stratosphere, one would like to think if we are good enough is because the although you have a more focused niche than I do, it's still mm-hmm. that kind of generalist nature which mm-hmm. makes for better content, I think. But it makes it harder to market in some ways. If you know sure. what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll so I'll I'll uh, yes, and mm-hmm. uh, I I think in my case that I am to a great I don't want to say hamstrung. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a slow build for me um, Same. for that reason. Um, I don't think so much, is so much for me it's because I'm a generalist. Although I do like – interesting you should point that out. I, I wish I'd picked a different podcast name than the political orphanage because people – a lot of the time the, – the orphanage bit people get, oh, okay, he's probably not a super Republican or a super Democrat. He's somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Great. That's accurate. Um, but I think the, the political orphanage, uh, the, a lot of the time people infer, oh, he must just be talking about Senate elections and government. And, and it's like really not – I don't do that much politics. I, I mostly do policy and how people think and I'll bring on neurochemists and things. Um, in terms of what I think keeps me from getting to that stratospheric level, and I don't think that I'm precluded from ever doing it, it's just a much slower burn. Mm-hmm. Is at least in American media, my guess would be in British political media as well. Um, the quickest way to build an audience is to uh, hate another audience. Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to be, if I wanted to be a really big character, what I could do, and I've I've had some opportunities to do this in my life, and I've I've eschewed them, are if, if I renamed the political orphanage Drinking Liberal Tears with Andrew Heaton, mm-hmm. uh, I would be able – conservatives would see that and go, ha-ha, I hate those guys. I'll oh, listen to this dude. And then I would rant about how liberals are even worse than you already thought they were. And you're even more right. And like, this is how – folks, this is what they're really like. This is and, – and I would just – I would do that. Or conversely, if I did a show called like – uh, fighting the fascist, bigoted conservatives with Andrew Heaton. Right, same thing. It's on the progressive end of these knuckle dragging hillbillies, you know, that are, with their stupid guns and they hate gay people and like it would it would appeal to to that set. Um, think, things which rely on outgroup contempt tend to be very emotionally evocative and and fill a need for a lot of people. Now, I would argue not a good need, not a a side of myself that I like or that I wish to enhance, but a lot of people like that. They like coming to media um, because they want rage and a feeling of self-righteousness. And I've worked in partisan media and I refuse to do that with my life. I refuse to be a person that sells hate or fear for a living. I won't do it um it would be a lot faster if i did that <laughs> and, and and i'll say just from a marketing signaling mechanism even outside of my I guess my self-righteous tirade that I just went on, um, it would be easier to reach conservatives or progressives if I were to hoist a flag very quickly or, yeah. or pick a group and go, I'm a super libertarian. I'm a super, whatever the thing is. For, for me coming in and going, I'm an independent. I'm trying to figure these things out. Uh, I, I, I I don't like red team versus blue team dynamics and I'm going to bring on a lot of interesting people and try to get the bottom of this. There are people who appreciate that but the problem is they're not all hanging out at the same place. Mm-hmm. Like if I they're just wanted right. to go get a bunch of conservatives, I know where to go. You go to conservatives shows. But if you're trying to find nuanced, intelligent people that have friends they disagree with, there's no central place they hang out at. Mm -hmm. Um, Fortunately, when they find my show, they tend to be really relieved. It's kind of like – I don't (laughs) know if you ever would have had this experience being in England, but like in Texas, it's really hot. You're walking around and you go into a grocery store. There's an air conditioning unit. And you're like, "Oh, oh, thank God. Let's just look at meat uh, to to avoid being in the heat for a while. Like They kind of get that for my show where they're like, oh, I could learn, but I'm not – all the horrible emotions I don't have to deal with.
0: Mm, That's a very good way of putting it. I mean, with my show where I have like a huge variety of guests, it becomes more difficult to market in the sense of like – if you like anything, that's not necessarily what's popular. I don't specifically go out my way to not choose popular individuals or talk about popular things. I just don't really take any notice of it. So I'm just like, who do I want to talk with? You know, I get people contact me who want to come on the show. I have people that I reach out to, to have on the show. And I just kind of go from there. There's, I really love Star Wars. So I talk to a lot of people involved with making and being in Star Wars and that sort of stuff. And so that's a, a part of it. But then I also love talking to people about music and I love from like death metal all the way to like classical music. I also like a lot of rap music. So Mm. I like a little bit of everything. So when you come to, you know, what tags or who do you want to market to on Facebook or wherever, who are you aiming for? It's like, well, I'm kind of aiming for anyone who is like, I almost describe my show as any person could find any episode in my catalog that they would enjoy because I've spoken Mm. about everything aside from sports and in depth politics i've spoken about political things um in various episodes but like in-depth political analysis aside from that and in-depth sport and in-depth cars i'd say i've spoken about pretty much everything in general you know so it's like how does one market that and I, I try my best and I, I I obviously only have a finite amount of time to be able to do all these things so I wanted to ask you sort of why did you start a podcast in the in the very first place like I've got the notes here there's the one which was I mean you've got you've also got the political orphanage and you've got um alienating the audience losers pretenders and scoundrels but then yeah. you also have got um was it uh Friday release valve. There's Friday release valve, but there's also um, something's off. Ah, okay, uh, right. With Andrew Heaton as well, which yeah. I think finished around uh, 20, uh, 2019. That's right. Yeah, so that's right. All these things. Like, which one was the one you started with, and what do you make you? What made you start a podcast?
1: So, so th- th- uh, four of those are actually the same show. They're just sort right. of split and and butted out. So, I, nice. I was originally doing a daily show on a network. Mm-hmm. Um, which was fun because they paid me mm-hmm. uh, and I didn't have to convince people to give me money. Uh, <clears throat> that show, that daily program was called Something's Off with Andrew Heaton, which was political uh, political commentary like I'm doing, which is say policy analysis and author interviews and talking to people about how people think. And I also did a lot of sketch comedy and I did a lot of, a, a lot of humor in it. So it was funny. It was political, but it was uh, anti-partisan in, in the outlook on it. Uh, I also was doing – because it was a daily show – um, on Fridays, I would just do a segment called Friday Release Valve, where it's like, we've already done four very heady episodes at the beginning of the week. Now I'm just going to bring on a comedian friend. We're just going to make fun of funny headlines. This is just to en- enjoy your car ride home. I'm not, it's Friday. I'm not thinking anymore. You don't have to think any anymore either. And then about once a month, we would do a thing called Alienating the Audience. Where I would talk to my producer and I was like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try and shake loose the entire audience by being as nerdy as we can. I'm going to bring in a friend to talk about the novel Dune in regards to OPEC and petroleum. And we would just go really hard, like both of our virginities would grow back, like that <laughs> level of, of nerdy. And what I found was that about 80% of the audience was like, ah. I'm going to not listen to this one. But then 20% was like, yes, talk to me about how Blade Runners actually actually uh, an exegesis of Hegel- whatever the thing is. Um, so in 2019 uh, or 2018, I can't remember the date, I think 2019, the show got canceled and uh, – what what I ended up doing was uh, the network was nice enough to let me do a goodbye episode, mm-hmm. and my uh, my my elder brothers in the podcasting community reached out to me. I told them I was like, hey, I, I just got canceled, uh, and they went immediately, go on Patreon, mm-hmm. uh, uh, immediately go do that. And I was like, I don't know if I want to keep doing politics. It's so awful right now. It's so abysmal, and people are such dickheads. <laughs> I can't can I just do something else? And they were like, you can, but. Um, This is going to be the best opportunity you ever have to get people to assist you in this. So the last episode of the show, I went on, thanked everybody. It was very funny, nice, poignant. And I went, um, hey, look, I don't know if I want to keep doing political media, uh, but if I do, it will be via Patreon. So if you want me to do it. Go to patreon.com slash Andrew Heaton, and I'll keep you abreast of the situation. And fortunately, um, my friends were correct that enough people that were listening to the show regularly were really sad that it was ending and were like, oh, nuts. I like that guy. Yeah, I'll give you five bucks a month or whatever to, to keep doing this. I would I would be willing to pay for that. Um, and so the show started. Now, I had originally th- – it became the Political Orphanage, which I, re- I probably should have kept it as something off as in, But I renamed it the Political Orphanage because I thought it would be good for marketing and uh, made it a weekly show. I thought it was going to be a – temporary thing I did for grocery money until I got a real job. Uh, you know, I was, I was thinking like, if I can make 60 bucks a week at this, that's like, that, I don't have to get food stamps for a while, or maybe I'll get the food stamps and I'll pocket the money. Uh, and and it got more than that to where it was like, like initially it was like two or $300 a week. And I was like, that's almost rent. Mm. Uh, that's like, this is approaching, approaching subsistence level. And kept at it. Then it got to that point and it kept growing and, uh, and, and it still continues to grow. The show is, the, the show incrementally grows every week. Um. And so I did that for a while. Eventually, I got so sick of American politics during the buildup to the 2020 election cycle that I decided to spin off Alienating the Audience as its own show uh, mm-hmm. and, and just, just make a show that was entirely science fiction and uh, have slowed down on that one a little bit. I've, I've kind of bitten off more than I can chew, Mike, where I now technically am, am the host of four different podcasts. And it turns out I can really do – one or two uh, on, on a weekly basis uh, without a, a professional producer coming in with a clipboard and sobering me up and pointing me to the booth. Uh, I, I don't have the bandwidth to do but I still do it occasionally. Um, And uh, did that, really needed the middle break from it, uh, and and also kind of hoped that I would just develop a different real estate uh, independent of politics. And then eventually, um, during the pandemic, uh, I hadn't done Friday release valve in in over a year. But during lockdown, listeners started reaching out going like, hey, uh, it really sucks right now. Could you just do the Friday release valve thing again to just give us a break from the horror that is life at this moment? And I thought if ever there were a moment where I as a comedian really can contribute and actually like this is an actual public service I can provide to people, this would be it. So I brought that back thinking it would be two months, uh, not realizing the pandemic would you know, be two years plus. Um, did it for a while and eventually it was just such a weird thing of like, you know, on Wednesday I'm going to talk to George Will about how... Uh, the electoral system should be the same as opposed to blah, 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 blah. But then on Friday, I'm going to have a comedian talk about how a naked guy robbed a taco truck with a sword in Florida. And, and eventually those things seemed weird enough to me that I, sp- I spun off Friday Release Valve as well. So it's its, it's, other, it, it's own podcast now that's just comedy, um, which is nice because I found that uh, a lot of potential comedian guests did not want to come on The Political Orphanage because they were afraid it was going to be overly pl- – even though I explained to them, this is a Friday segment, we're just doing comedy. They were worried about coming on, but they're they're not worried about coming on an explicitly comedy show. And it gives me leverage too where if they want to go on a, on a political tirade, I can kind of stop and be like, look, I, I get that you're very fired up about this. But I talk about that stuff for a living and this is my break where I get to talk about naked guys robbing taco trucks. Can we focus <laughs> on that? Uh, this is for my benefit. Um, And then the final one, the newest podcast that I added, Losers, Pretenders, and Scoundrels, which is the history podcast. uh, That one is just because my my best friend, Andrew Young, just sucks at long-distance friendships. He's really bad at it. Uh, I'm pretty good at staying in contact with my friends. He's rubbish at it. Uh, He'll go like six months without calling me. And I finally figured out he's bad at just staying in touch. He's real good at projects. So I tricked him into spending time with me by forming this podcast. So we now do it every week, every other week. It's just a way to hang out with him. I don't really care if people listen to that one or not. Uh, that, that one's just a trick my friend do, but it's a lot of fun. It's a history podcast with two comedians. We just pick an interesting person from history and, and discuss them. That's amazing. I mean
0: – yeah, it's, it's a good show, I think, to split them at that point. I mean, for me, I've just got my two shows, which is I've got Star Wars comics and canon, and it's, it's a Star mm-hmm. Wars comic show. I, I read mm-hmm. Star Wars comics and I give people the plot details, so they don't need to have read the comic necessarily, but I also do various connections to things in there. It's like, well, these are the species you've come across before. there's is the characters popped up here before. Here's some recommended reading, blah. So it, it's that sort of thing. And that obviously would not work on genuine chit chat, which is what we you know, what we're on now, which is speaking mm-hmm. about anything it, it's just a conversation that's why the, it's called genuine chit chat it's just listening to people talk and is a it's a for me it, w- it was kind of that thing where i wanted to talk about things like random thoughts that would occasionally come to my head and i would talk to people about them when we'd like me and my friends would hang out on a friday night and it was like oh yeah we, we don't really want to talk about that stuff right now we just want to chill and not to wear anything that serious we just want to kind of you know that sort of thing and i was like hmm if i want to talk to one of them specifically i can much like you've done with your uh, uh, latest podcast i'm just like if i want to talk to one of them about this sort of thing i can just ask them to come my podcast and a few of them will come on the show and in the early Mm -hmm. days of the podcast i was just talking to people about subjects that you know if i just call up one of my friends and said hey would you be okay with just talking about sort of anxiety and how it's affected you and how you've kind of got over it they'd be like what you want me to come over here and bear my soul out to you for an hour or so and then leave yes Mm -hmm. They were like, "What?" Yeah. <laughs> if yeah, you say, you know, it's, it's recording it. You put a microphone inside. You know, we spoke briefly about it uh, earlier on the show. No, you no, hundred percent. Like, like,
1: like, like uh, the the astronomer royal of the United Kingdom, Lord Martin Rees, uh, came on my show because he he heads up an institute at Cambridge uh, of trying to assess extinction or assess extinction level events. Mm. And I was like, man, I want to talk to Lord Martin about <laughs> or Lord Rees. I don't know how that works. You say Sir Martin, but Lord Lord Rees, um, uh, but but Lord Lord Rees. About this, but if I just called him up was like, "Hey, I'm some guy. Want to talk about asteroids?" That wouldn't like that wouldn't happen. But, if, but uh-huh. if I called it like, "Listen, I've got this this show. I'd, I'd really like to talk to you about this because I work in policy analysis." And we, we he did he was lovely lovely guy came on the show and I. Um, wasn't able to ask him all the science questions that I wanted to do, and, and was like, you know, I have the sci-fi podcast. You want to come on that? And he's like, yes, I'd be happy to. And so we, <laughs> the following week, he came on and like, I'm t- like, and it, it's it's mind-blowing. I'm I'm some dude from Oklahoma. Like, I, I I graduated from the University of Oklahoma for my undergraduate degree. My the extent of my scientific training is trying to understand things from Star Trek that I heard in the '90s, <laughs> uh, and I'm able to talk to um, like arguably the top mathematician in the United Kingdom. And I'm asking him questions about light spectrum and how gravity works. And, and like, like, like and it's like, this is amazing. And, and the <laughs> podcast do open that. Um, I, I do wonder in your, in your case, Mike, cause it, it like, I, I, I can relate to the getting hobbled by, by the generalist thing. Um, my experience has been in the world of podcasting that there's this sort of stated reason people come to a podcast and there's the, the unstated reason they come to a podcast. So uh, like a lot of podcasts, l- less for me because I t- I tend to m- – maybe with my history podcast, but not with, with a political orphanage. A lot of podcasts have a dedicated cast where there's mm-hmm. like usually two or three guys and they're really good buddies and they're going to talk about something, true crime or conspiracy theories or some, whatever the thing is. And so people will go, oh, I like that show because I like true crime. But in reality, what they're really coming there I think is they like the feeling of being around a kitchen table with friends. There's a yep. kind of surrogate friendship vibe to them. And uh, and so I'm I'm aware of that when I do my shows. So like with the political orphanage, the, the sort of stated thing is um, I, I want to learn about stuff and I want to be challenged and I want to talk to deep thinkers. But the unstated thing is like, also I'm not going to make you feel like shit. And <laughs> like I recognize that you probably have friends you disagree with and you now feel it's very strange that you're one of the people capable of this. And like you're going to get to feel this sense of relief in hanging out with like-minded people. So like in your case – Um, What would you espouse as the stated and unstated thing people
0: are getting from your show? I'd say the stated thing is the conversations that people have – the conversation that I have with the variety of guests. It would be learning something, having lots of different perspectives, and kind of each week being something different. I think that's the stated reason. I think the unstated reason would be from what I've heard from certain feedback from listeners is the way that I present questions to certain guests of mine and the way that I speak with the guests and the hosting that I bring myself – um, which is harder to market in certain ways uh, especially there's nothing that specific that's like easy to explain and market just like of like a buzzword or anything about me that makes mm. me uh, stand out from other people necessarily yeah, that's, and that's
1: the problem with with, with
0: generalists is that the mm. the generalist podcasts tend to be, kickstarted
1: by celebrities that already have a massive following. Mm-hmm. So the the marketing mechanism is hey this person that you already know and love is going to have very broad conversations where if if you're like you and me who are nascent celebrities yep. but not not established uh, public figures we have that problem. I wonder if you couldn't gamify it. Like like um uh, so my my buddy Brian Brushwood, who's who's one of the guys that's really helped me in podcasting. One of the one of his pieces of advice for me was whenever I start a new podcast, he's like, I should be able to say, "Welcome to." X podcast, the only podcast that why, And if I can't explain how my podcast is the only podcast that does this particular thing, it's probably going to fail. So for example, my sci-fi podcast is a lot of fun. I really enjoy doing it. I don't know how it's unique to a lot of other established sci-fi podcasts. So probably it's not going to be able to build up steam the same way these older legacy ones are. Mm. Um, But like in your case, I wonder if you couldn't like just go, um, you know, welcome to the podcast every week. We are trying to find the most interesting person in the world and at the end of every year because how long how old's your show
0: uh coming it's about four and a half years at the moment it's coming great to so
1: so this benefits me directly uh what what i would like i think at the end of every year you should have all of your listeners vote on who the most interesting person is and then you fly them <laughs> to southampton to have lunch with you and you record it yeah but if, then, I could, but then, if i could afford to fly someone to me to southampton i be delightful. you know what i bet i bet your audience would step up i i think if you, you were like look would. Yeah. Let's, I, let's say I'm probably going to get runner up. I'm just assuming here. I'm going to, I'm going to be like the vice president of fun, interesting people, but I'm not going to be the the top one's going to be some other, uh, other guy or gal. Great. Okay, cool. If, if you come on the show and you're like, do you all remember that guy I talked to? Who's like a former Green Beret Navy SEAL astronaut that like briefly dated Lindsay Lohan and Kate Middleton at the same time before he punched Prince Philip, that guy, uh, (laughs) I want to fly that guy to Southampton. I want to, I'm want i going to give him a medal that says most interesting man of the world, and I'm going to fly him to Southampton – would you give me $10 to do that? And then you do like a Kickstarter campaign. I bet people would step up and do it.
0: That's an interesting perspective. They may do that. That That is an interesting idea. This
1: is just me trying to get a free trip to England, you know, so <laughs> you realize this is not good advice. This is just me trying to figure out how to get you to pay me to come to
0: England. No, I'm not listening. I mean, I've got, I have got Patreons and things. So I do make money. Well, I see make loosely. I still have to have a nine to five job and things, but I do still get money uh, from my patrons. And I also want to clarify, even though I'm talking about not able to market myself, I am very happy with my audience. They are delightful. They are uh, incredible to have and things I, I appreciate all of them and all the nice messages and reviews and et cetera that I do get and everyone listening and things making the show possible because I have had some really cool guests on. So it's not a thing of, you know, it's just always that kind of desire of more. And the answer is to invest more time in marketing the podcast and, do, and working on those sort of things. And going on other
1: podcasts too, right? Like that's yeah. what I'm doing. And you should to promote my show
0: <laughs> yeah exactly i mean it's, it's something i have been trying a little bit recently but where i've been in the process of buying a house like all my free time has been going into viewing houses and then doing documents and stuff and um spending time with my partner in certain times and things so it's just like the last six months i haven't guessed on as many so it's one of those things where i'm trying to Soon, later in the year, I'm going to try, and I think of it, definitely next year, once I've got the house, everything's kind of sorted. It's,
1: it's tough, man. Like I've got, I've got thing. all
0: these things I should
1: be doing to promote my show, and mm. just just getting the show produced is such a mammoth undertaking. Um, that I don't, uh, it's very difficult for me to get ahead and go like, ah, now like, like I really want to do a foreign policy week. Normally I do one episode a week and I do a bonus episode for people on Patreon. I really want to do a full week of foreign policy where I do like a full episode on this is what happens in the event of nuclear war. And then I bring on somebody to talk about like why America should be a very robust presence abroad. And then I bring on a non-interventionist. Well, it's difficult for me to do five episodes ahead of time. Like Mm. that's, I'm doing an entire month's worth of work for one week. It'd be fun. I want to do it. I feel like it'd be useful, but also it's hard for me to get ahead of the game. Mm. And I'll, I'll circle back. I like that Mike, I like that you like your audience. Uh, That's (laughs) because like, I don't like that is a, um, a really, that can go off the rails. And that's a nice thing. If you've got an audience you like, because I know people in politics particularly in political media, who are afraid of their audience. Yeah. The, 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 to to hearken back, like, the, the the people I'm thinking of know that the purpose of their job is to shovel red meat down people's gullets, uh, that's either yay Democrat or yay Republican. And they also know that as a result of that, if they don't deliver, they're in trouble and mm-hmm. and that their, their audience is coming to get very angry and to get fired up to go fight the bad guys with a rake outside. And it really limits their ability to do things. Uh, and like I've been really pleased with my audience. Um, my audience mostly doesn't agree with me, which mm-hmm. I like. Uh, Because it means that I don't have to like – I'm not hamstrung in that capacity. The only thing i found is that – and I think this isn't my audience. I think this is universal. I think people react very negatively to contempt. Mm -hmm. There's a very big difference between saying – I think you're wrong versus I think you're an irredeemable yokel yeah. or I, I think you're a dumb bigot versus I think you're mistaken. There's mm-hmm. a big difference between error and sin mm-hmm. and there's a big difference between disagreement and contempt. And I, I find that like my audience really likes being challenged. They like me bringing they, – they, they, the favorite guests we bring on are people that I disagree with that I get along well with. Like mm-hmm. when it's a friend, we're, we're arguing, but we like each other and you could tell we're probably going to make out or maybe get <laughs> drinks or something afterwards. They like those episodes and um and then and, and I've kind of like I early on I'm so glad I did this. I kind of like I don't want to say trained the audience because that sounds a lot more pavlovian <laughs> than I I want it to come off as I established the the cultural norms for the audience for early in my show. So I was doing a daily show and I would bring on uh every, every week I I uh it was a rule I had with my producer, I want to make sure you book me a conservative, a progressive, and an other every mm-hmm. week. I don't want to. I don't want to fall into an echo chamber uh, phenomenon. So I want to make sure that we've got different perspectives we're bringing on all the time, uh, which was a really big hassle for him, and he didn't like me for it. But I think <laughs> it made the show better. Well, as a result, the audience was inevitably going to be confronted with somebody that they didn't agree with. And what I started doing, uh, or, or maybe my opinion, they didn't agree with, um, when somebody would write a really nice email uh, of like, "Dear Mister Heaton, and I enjoy your show, but I really disagreed with your take on why we should." get rid of bail money in favor of a, whatever the thing is. Uh, I would read it on the show and go, I just want to say how much I appreciate you listening to the episode and how kind and polite you were and how how much I enjoy that this audience – uh, engages with ideas that they disagree with uh, by being rational and kind, and it kind of like it sent out a big signal flare to everybody of like, "Yep, this is how to approach me," and, uh, <laughs> and it was great. It established that like now, like my hate mail is absurd, Mike. My hate mail is like at it, at its height, its most frothy. My hate mail is Canadian. It's like, <laughs> like dear Mister Heaton, I love your show, but I took umbrage with something you said the other day, and I have. Here are three reasons that I think that you should reevaluate your position like that's three reasons why you should reevaluate your position is like the height of anger on my show which is great uh, I I really like it I don't I don't fear my audience they're nice uh, I don't have to worry about uh, about having weird ideas uh and uh, and, and so it's good I'm, I'm glad it sounds like you've got kind of a comparable thing going on
0: yeah yeah one of my audience members they wrote a review and said specifically they're like what, although Michael is, Mike has people on that I don't always agree with. I still appreciate the way he kind of Mm. presents it in things. And I don't agree with everyone completely and I will counter to things. But generally speaking, it's more about just hearing what their perspective is. It's on my show. It's just like, I'm just interested to know. Kind of what makes a person a person, but also what their areas of expertise are and what their special favourite things are. And when I have certain individuals on the show, sometimes I'll talk to them and we'll talk over such a wide range of topics. It'll be like, okay, now when you come on the show next time, let's just kind of vaguely focus on this kind of thing. And I do have repeating guests. and There are a pool of people who are familiar that come on occasionally. Mm -hmm. My my girlfriend Megan is one of them. Um, We're coming up near uh, the end here, but before I want to wrap up or anything like that, I I just want to ask... um, about the thing which is kind of why we got into contact in some ways is something we haven't even mentioned which is you promoting your newest book uh yes. so i thought if we want to spend a few minutes just uh ooh, tell us about the book and we'll kind of uh, go from there before sort of finishing off so
1: listen english people y'all like books but you never have enough books you like reading there's not very many right isn't that the problem we all face don't worry lord uncle heaton wrote a new book it's called Inappropriately Human, 21 Short Stories. And it is a short story collection that I'm going to say is kind of half funny, half Twilight Zone. So uh, a lot of it's science fiction. Some of it's downright literary. There's a pretty wide range of the types of stories. Uh, but, but it oscillates between being interesting thought experiments in the realm of science fiction, a la Twilight Zone, Black Mirror, Outer Limits, or being funny. A la Douglas Adams or Dave Barry. Uh, and uh, I, I, I put a lot of time and effort into it. And I've been very pleased with the response that I've got from it. I just got an email a couple of days ago. There's a teacher here in the States who's going to buy 60 copies and use it as a classroom material. Uh, and I was like, hell yeah, I'm, I'm going to start warping children early. Plus, I think in my case, the, the best case I can shoot for it, Mike, is being ironically hip in my 50s. <laughs> I think that's the coolest. I've never thought I was cool. I don't think I'm ever going to be cool. Ironically hip. Might be something I could do. So I'm like, yeah, start getting those high school students now so that when I'm all gray and I'm not a threat in any way, shape, or form, I'm cute. And then they <laughs> then they they invite me to stuff. Uh, yeah, inappropriate, I, I'd recommend inappropriately Human to people. And then uh, if you've got like an Audible subscription or you've got something like that, you're looking for an audio book. Uh, I had an audio book of it come out in the last month or two. I narrated it. So if you've already fallen in love with my voice and you're semi-erect just listening to me, <laughs> um, you could get fully erect as well. a man or... Or a woman. I know I am. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> while, while listening to it. So, Inappropriately Human. 21 short
0: stories. That's wonderful. And um I was going to say, also, what made you What made you re- like write the book? Uh And also, why write short stories? Because that is not a medium that is mm. uh, very often tread. Obviously, you've got certain authors and certain yeah. groups of things which are known to be anthologies and things, or, or anthologies or just individual short stories, however you want to sort of frame it. But the – or connected short stories, rather. But, like, what made you write – Short stories. What made you write this book?
1: So, uh, writing a short story collection is a really bad idea if your goal is to sell a lot of books. Uh, and, and I say that not because the series is done or the the, the book is done poorly. I've been very pleased with it. Uh, but it, short story collections are notoriously difficult to sell mm-hmm. um, because, in fiction, pretty much is. So, like, if like I'm working on a book right now that's a nonfiction book about tribalism, groupthink, in group versus out-group dynamics. Tentatively titled Tribalism is Dumb. If if I came on your show and I said, I'm the author of a book called Tribalism is Dumb, it explains groupthink, your listeners could go, Well, I don't know who that guy is, but that seems like an interesting topic. Um, fiction's harder to do because mm-hmm. you're like, well, I don't, I don't like, what's the book about? Well, that sounds like a good premise. What kind of writer is he? Uh, and then short story collections are even harder because you're you're really just banking on the narrative ability of the author rather than even the premise because there's multiple premises in it, right? Um, so, for example, on my sci-fi podcast, Alienating the Audience, I interviewed Andy Weir who wrote The Martian and Artemis and uh, some other books. Very beloved and very decent, nice guy, I should add, uh, science fiction writer. And when we got off uh, microphone, I, I mentioned that I was planning to do this and he was like – Hey, just so you know, I wouldn't do this and I'm Andy Weir. Uh, Except he said it, he said it in a less egotistical version. He really is. He's a great guy, but he he basically was like, look, like I've got a giant audience. And like, you know, I've made millions of dollars writing sci-fi novels. I won't write a a short story collection. Um, So it's not a great idea. I I did it really because um, I I love writing and and I'll keep doing it until uh, uh, Congress forces me to stop. And and I, I don't. Uh, it would be great if that became a mainstay of income, if it never happens and and I just get the odd school teacher that is going to use it as teaching material, uh, I, I will be content with that. I very much enjoy doing it. Um, in my case, I had written a bunch of short stories maybe like 10 years ago and the idea at the time had been I was going to try and get them uh, published at various magazines and then through that maybe get a book deal and and it just – it was such a complicated, laborious process to, to – Get something published in another place, so that I could get an unrelated thing published. That I eventually gave up on it. Um, But I was writing short stories for fun over the last couple of years, and and realized after a while, oh wait a minute, I've actually got a full book of short stories. It's just that I've never thought of them that way before, and and thought, well, I'll go ahead and uh, I'll I'll bundle these up, put them out. And then my my new plan is, I've got like three or four unpublished books right now that I are just sitting there waiting to be edited and published. My my new plan is to just publish them or try to get them published annually on my birthday. Mm. That way, it's not a day about me dying and about <laughs> entropy and me marching towards death. <laughs> Rather, a celebration of me making a thing and, and doing a, a, a book signing that all my friends feel guilty of avoiding and have to come out to go to. So uh, that was that was the most recent one. Nice.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate that you're... I want to say one thing I've learned from uh, listening to your uh, both the podcast that you host, but also the podcast you've appeared on a lot, is that a lot of your humor... And this is a high compliment. Is that it reminds me of British humour in a lot of ways. It's it's very word based. It's very witty. Mm. It's very much about. And you've got the self deprecation. I'm not saying that only British comedians use self deprecation, but a lot of the elements of British humour that I enjoy. You know, you've got the obviously the very slapsticky sort of side of British humour. Just like you've got a lot of things, but like in the sort of the the wordplay where you've got just the the whole humour in whatever you're watching or consuming is just in what's being said. I appreciated that level because obviously you are also a stand-up comedian as well. And I think it does come across in even the way you present yourself when you are on um, your own or other people's podcasts. So I was very, when I was l- like uh, looking up information about you, because um, I'm stalking you, um when I did that, it was for obviously you to come on the show and I was very pleasantly surprised because a certain guest I listen to and it's more so like, okay, what questions here were their answers mm. not as interesting for, or what have they said a hundred times in every podcast they've ever heard ho- right. g- come on, compared to, you know, on for you as I was like, there are so many things here. We've we've touched like one of my bullet points. And that was just vaguely about like what was what was scotland like <laughs> that yeah, was, yeah. of all the things so it, it's really good having your stand-up comedy come through and make you the, the witty and the the funny side of things while also being a generalist in the sense of that you you are interested in a lot of things makes you for a great podcast guest so thank i really you. appreciate researching you that, for that is the a show. whole bucket of compliments i'm going to put in my back pocket that's very kind
1: of you thank you i i, I accept that compliment uh, with great respect and gratitude, um, I, and, and, and the English humor I, I take with, uh, with, with great uh, honor, um, uh, if I could flatter myself, I would like to think that I am attempting to emulate some midpoint between Will Rogers and John Cleese uh, oh, yes. of, of having that kind of fake pomposity – yeah. Combined with the occasional folksy kick, mm-hmm. um, so I'm I'm attempting to inhabit that space, and uh, I'm very glad to hear that the the, the conversation came off well. I, I, and Mike, I really know what you're talking about too. Like one of the things that um, I have to do on my show uh, on on the Political Orphanage, I do a lot of author interviews, and um, not everybody knows this. Not all authors are good at talking. That a lot correct. of them are really good at writing, but they're not good at talking. And it being an audio medium, I have to kind of be careful about that. Uh, and then one of the other things that'll happen is um you'll have somebody that is good at talking, but they've done the interview 50 times and they're bored with it and you can yep. hear it in their voice that they're doing it. Um And I think comedy does help in that capacity because- um, selfishly, comedy is I like making people laugh. It makes me feel good. I get all sorts of cool neurochemicals squirting through my brain. And I, I don't know. I'm sure there's some, yeah, I'm smart. Everybody likes me. But I think charitably, comedy is sort of at root about uh, making other people feel good and about having a connection. And um, having that connection requires having some sort of actual uh, communication in the present mm-hmm. rather than than just giving you boilerplate all the time, right?
0: yeah yeah definitely uh, I completely agree with you and what you said there about there are certain individuals that like I've spoken to there's a couple of authors of Star Wars books that are some of my favourite guests and some of the uh, people who have been in done a lot of interviews and things talking about the books and things I specifically have to listen to their podcasts uh, of other interviews they've done and be like mm-hmm. okay here's the when did you fast get the call about writing Star Wars what was your favourite Star Wars character like these questions are interesting but if you've heard at least one interview with some of these people you yeah. know exactly what they're going to say and yeah. trying to find those elements inside of that it was uh it, it can be and with writers and things as you've pointed out it can be that and other times it can be okay how am i going to turn this into a kind of a conversation without giving them one word answers like do you think this book is better than the last book yes mm-hmm. okay well that's i thought you were going to talk about that a little bit longer so i found that out more early on when i talked to certain friends and things who weren't really wanting to go on on mike my yeah. not not that i pressure them in any way but i'd ask them and they'd be like okay, it's not my kind of thing, but I'll do it for you. So I'll yeah. do it. And this person's kind of like, in your case, it's like, I don't really do it, but I want to sell the book. So I'm going to. And so there are elements of people, but I think you, uh, as a host, you do really well. Thank so you. To well, wrap it, up.
1: It, it helps twofold in my show. Cause I, like it, it helps one a lot. Like, I don't think people realize how infrequently authors are actually interviewed by people that read their book. That's yes. pretty rare. They're going on a ton of radio shows mm-hmm. where the the producer is handed a a note card with bullet points that say yep. this book is about Israel and that's it. That's all they know, yep. right? And like, but like, like for people that do the research, and you're very clearly a guy who does your research. I do my research when I when I bring a, an author on. I'm like, hey, like in chapter eight, you said this thing that made me think. Well, like, and, and like, generally they'll be so happy. That that I took the time mm. to read the book and formulate questions about it. Uh, and then the other thing too is when it gets into that boilerplate mode and I can sense it now, I'll try and throw them off. Not because I want to make them feel bad or look bad. Or and the like, well, last thing I want to do is for anybody to come on The Political Orphanage and, and sound stupid. But I do want them to be um, real with me. Yeah. So like there's there's an author I really like named George Will. I've been a big fan of him growing up. He's a a really, really smart, erudite political commentator in the United States. Uh, And I had, as you've done, listened to a bunch of episodes that he'd done on other programs before he came on mine. So I knew his lines because he had the same lines. You know, in in 1882, uh, 50% of the American public lived within 20 miles of tidewater. And I could hear that. So I just started asking him random questions like, if you could have any superpower, what superpower (laughs) would you have? And he'd like kind of – like you could hear the gears turning in his mind – uh, but it sort of forced him to be like, like, like live in the moment, and, and we ended up getting lunch. It was fun.
0: That's the life. For it's one of the great things about podcasts. So to, to wrap up, because I mean, we could talk for ages if I fired unlimited time, which means you'll just have to come on again. Um, but um, please tell people sort of what um obviously you've spoken about the political orphanage and i did uh, i think briefly mention your other podcast but please mm-hmm. tell people your podcasts um, the best place people can find you on social media your website and your, your book name again just kind of final plugs uh, before i stop the recording Let's see.
1: I'll try and overwhelm everybody. Uh, on, tw- on Twitter, I'm at Mighty Heaton, H-E-A-T-O-N. Uh, I tend to just fire off jokes and things on Twitter. I'm, I don't know. I'm, you're not going to get any hot takes from me. You're just going to get funny <laughs> things I got while I was drunk or high uh, that I put on there. Uh, if you enjoyed listening to me and you thought I was an interesting person, I, I, would, I would first recommend you check out The Political Orphanage because I think it does tend to be the the broadest things that I, I discuss. I know it has the word politics in it, but it's a lot of author interviews, cognition, policy, that kind of thing. If you don't care anything about that, but you do really like science fiction, and it sounds like there's a lot of crossover that you might given your Star Wars show, come check out Alienating the Audience, which is my sci-fi program, Um, We just did one, like this is how nerdy it is. We did one last week just on Moriarty in Star Trek The Next Generation. So like just talking about the Sherlock Holmes character that said two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. If that appeals to you, check out Alienating the Audience. And if you were like, that guy's funny, but I don't want any depth. I don't want any depth at all. Then check out Friday Release File, which is my comedy show, or quasi-depth, go to Losers, Pretenders, and Scoundrels, which is uh, my history podcast. And finally, if you're like, that guy was great, but I hated the sound of his voice, but I love killing trees. I love killing trees, but I don't like that guy's voice, but I liked him as a person. Then buy Inappropriately Human 21 Short Stories, my latest book.
0: But if you don't want to kill trees, but you still want all that stuff, then you can get it uh, either on Audible. audible or Audible, yeah. Is there an ebook version, maybe? Or my Yeah, you it? could get it on Kindle you, or get all three. Maybe you hate trees and you like my voice. <laughs> That's absolutely wonderful. Well, you know, um, Heaton, it was wonderful having you on the show and is an open door for you to come on the show anytime you want uh, in the future. And, you know, there are so many elements that we could just talk about uh, and have a whole another hour or two to discuss. So I'll surely make the time uh, to be able to have you on again, um, but just- Thank you. I appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's the end of the conversation. Thank you, as always, for listening all the way to the end. I do hugely appreciate it. Make sure you check out the show notes to go on to Heaton's website, and then you can check out his variety of podcasts, including The Political Orphanage. Obviously, he spoke about quite a bit in this conversation. And in the description you can find all the other things that I've been up to, some of the guest spots, what happened in the last episode of Genuine Chit Chat, as well as links to my Patreon, to my Star Wars show, and if you click the link in the description, which is bit.ly slash tomhanks1, or you just type that into a browser of your choice, you'll be taken to the Genuine Chit Chat Patreon, and you'll be taken specifically to the episode of the Tom Hanks Watch, where me and Megan tackled the movie Big, which is where we started this Tom Hanks Watch. So if you're interested in my Patreon, then you can give as little as £1 a month, you get access to loads of exclusive genuine chit chat content so there's afterthoughts at least once a week either myself and Megan talk about our lives or movies or TV series or I do book reviews on Star Wars Legends content and some canon content that I don't put on the main Star Wars feed and there's other bits and pieces on there as well but the main thing is you get to support the show and also you get hours and hours of additional content you just get to put the RSS link into any podcast app of your choice or you just get to go to the Patreon app itself and listen on there Uh, but please consider checking that out as it would mean the world to me I know a few you have done it recently, including Scott Weatherly and Spider Dan, so I appreciate both of those individuals joining the family of Patreon. But obviously, the more the merrier. So what have we got coming up then? Well, next week is busy for me. I've got three podcasts that I'm recording. So I've got one with Ben of Star Wars Timeline. We're going to be doing a Kenobi prequel discussion show. So basically going to be talking about a lot of the canon and Legends content surrounding Kenobi that might influence or might help the series that we're getting at the end of the month. But also we're going to give some recommended reading, also thoughts on what we actually want from the show. So it's quite a good sort of pre-show listen, if you were. In addition to that, I'll be recording another episode of Disney Discussions, so that's where myself, Megan, Rhea, and Spider-Dan all discuss Disney movies. So the first one we did was our favorite Disney movies, which is quite easy and simple, and this one is some sequels, so straight-to-home release sequels. So we're doing it on Mulan 2, Lion King 2, Bambi 2, of all things, and Aladdin 2, so we're in the midst of watching those, so we'll have a good old chin wag about all of those. And then I'm also having a conversation with an individual who helped write a very, very pop video game so I'm very very excited to speak with that individual but that conversation won't be released for a few weeks because Sony have to listen to it and then approve it but I'm still very excited for that but that's generally what you can expect over the next few weeks I've got some other stuff in the pipeline as per usual and I also did go on the Star Wars Timeline YouTube channel back like a week or so ago and myself and Ben spoke about villains in Star Wars as well as villains outside of Star Wars you know what makes a good villain and we go through each of the trilogies and discuss who the villains are what works with them and what didn't and we both have differing viewpoints on the whole thing but the discussion is really really interesting and I always enjoy talking to Ben of Star Wars Timeline so a link to that will also be in the description but aside from that my friends you can rate on Spotify you can leave reviews on Good Pods or Apple Podcasts or other places like that you can share episodes on social media you can tell your friends about episodes of Genuine Chit Chat or any of my other shows and you can support the show on patreon but most important you just need to listen and that's what you're already doing all the way to the very end of this so i do hugely hugely appreciate that and please subscribe to my YouTube channel. Link is in the description, because once you do that and I get 100 subscribers, then I can change the channel link name. Obviously, far more than that amount of people listen on the usual podcast apps and things, as this is a primarily audio show, but if you want to see things put into playlists, if you want to see some video versions of certain conversations with people, and you want to see the Star Wars Comics and Canon episodes all in one place, then please go over and subscribe to my YouTube channel. But that's going to be enough from me, my friends. Thank you, as always, for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you listening all the way to the very end, and I'll speak you all next week likely my conversation with Ben about Kenobi, but we shall see.
1: You have just experienced host, creator, everything else of genuine chit chat, and also the host and creator of Star Wars comics and canon found on the Comics in Motion podcast, Mike Burton.